Well, good morning. Okay, yeah, good morning. Thank you, guys. It's good to see you guys who are back from spring break, because I know that I, I really hope that that was fun. Um, my name is Nick Allen, and I'm really thrilled to be with you here today. Um, as we continue this series, it's all about loving everyone always. And I got to tell you, I'm those of you who know me or know me like a little bit or at all or in any sort of circumstance, I am not so much the athletic one. Now, don't let the physique fool you, um, but I'm, I'm not going to be out there playing all the sports or really even following where they are. Um, but this image popped up in my news feed not too long ago. And coming from the Carolinas, you guys are the best people ever. I don't know what you're bringing me right now. Stage set, Stage set from Belmont. Okay. Just hope nothing pops out of there. Um, okay, good deal. <laughs> this is the strangest moment of my life. Whatever is going on. We do have a little table. Um, someone took it. Um, they're playing a really fun joke on me. So not too long ago, this popped up in my newsfeed, this idea, and you will recognize him. And, and coming from the Carolinas, like my wife and I do, and happening to be Duke fans, her more than me, but I'm along for the ride. Um, this image pops up in our newsfeed, and you'll recognize this as a, a fellow named Zion Williamson, who's number one for Duke right now, and number one on that team in a lot of ways, because he's apparently really, really good. And uh, 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 In February, a little about a month ago, um, in the game against Chapel Hill, University of North Carolina, no doubt, um, this guy busts through the bottom, like, you all know this, because I'm looking out at, like, literally some basketball stars up in the room, um, maybe not the music kids from Belmont. That's okay. Um, but check it out. These guys right here, like he busts through the bottom of his Nike shoe. Now, can you imagine being the person in that moment who designed the Nike shoe and this guy has just busted through the bottom of it? You're thinking, oh my goodness, I'm losing my job today because this guy just bust through his Nike shoe. And then I think to myself, like, so immediately, if you, if this, you've seen this happen, like there's another picture too. Look at the close up. Like his foot is coming through the bottom of the shoe. I should have looked up before I came here, like what size foot that was. I remember when I was a little kid and you would go to the Foot Locker at the mall and they would have this giant, like cut out cardboard poster of Shaquille O'Neal right there in the middle of the mall with like an actual shoe of his. Not, well, not like an actual shoe of his. Like I wasn't a kid in Charlotte, North Carolina, and they were parading around. Like, like I don't know, it's like coming to the museum. Here's a picture. Like this is Shaquille O'Neal's. He's actually, he sweated inside the shoe. No, it was just like the same size that he wore, which was like, I don't know, like a 26 or something, just a huge foot. And I remember being a kid and being able to stick like both of my feet into this one shoe of this guy. I don't know what size this is, but I do know that he busted through the bottom of it. And then I immediately started thinking to myself, he's okay, so Nike, they lose like 1.7% like points, whatever that is. I don't understand. Like, I don't understand sports. I also don't understand finance. They lost a whole lot in the stock market that day because this guy busts through his Nike shoe. And I'm thinking, you know, if I accidentally split my pants, no one's blaming Old Navy. Like, no one's like, Old Navy's stock is not plummeting because Nick Allen bent over and split his pants. Like, my kids, they wear, like, leggings or pants from Target. I mean, that's where good parents shop. Like, where are you else going to get cheap clothes? They, like, wear the knees out of their pants all the time. And, like, the leggings that we buy for the girls, they always come with this sticker that says, reinforced knee. And I'm like... No, it's not, because they bust through the knees all of the time. And like the knees are getting all scratched up and the print, because you know, they're little girls and so, well, they're not so little anymore, oh. but they were. And like when they were little girls and it had like, I don't know, like kitty cats or unicorns all over their leggings, 
the kitty cats and the unicorns on the knees would always disappear because of how hard the kids play. Target stock was not going down just because my kids ruined the knees in the little leggings that they wore. And if you Google this guy, Zion Williamson, and the fact that Nike, like they immediately pulled together a whole R&D team and sent them to China to figure out what we're going to do about this guy's shoes. When I rip my clothes, no one is pulling together an entire team of people, taking them off of all of the responsibilities that they're supposed to handle in life and saying, you have got to fix Nick Allen's clothes because I'm not that important. And I look at this moment and I go and I was like, God, this guy is, he is six, seven, 285 pounds. And I immediately got panicked to myself because I was so thankful in that moment that I'm a pastor, not an athlete. Because if you're an athlete, apparently the first thing that pops up with you when you Google is your height and weight. And I never want to see that out there on the World Wide Web for me. And I'm looking back at the responsibility. Like, Nike, you had one job, make shoes. And apparently... Every time we rumored that this guy was going to come, like he was injured, every time we rumored that he was going to come back to play, Nike stock went up. And finally, when he's out there on the court again, beating University of North Carolina, no doubt, the stock hit another high. All of this, a whole month of me thinking about this one guy and his shoes and how he busted through it. When I bend or I break, or or something about me doesn't do the role that I'm supposed to do or fulfill the job that I'm supposed to fill. Nike, you make a shoe. Like when I don't do the thing that I'm supposed to do, who loses points? Who loses credibility? Who, who, Who loses when I fail? When I fail to love, when I fail to share, when I fail to show the person of Jesus Christ in the way that my life is supposed to illustrate the person of Jesus Christ. It's ultimately the gospel that pays the price. And so we land in a passage of scripture today. It's, it's the book of Luke. It's part of this collection of works called the Gospels. If you've got a Bible and you want to turn along with me, words will pop up on the screen if you don't. But if you, if you like the feeling of the pages working with you, um, the book of Luke is the third in the New Testament. So I don't know, a little more than halfway back through your Bible, you're going to find Matthew, Mark, and then Luke. And it's his account of life with Jesus and what it meant to be a Jesus follower. In this particular passage in Luke chapter 10, Jesus is sending out his disciples. And we can't be confused in this moment because there's already another story in scripture where he sent out disciples and we immediately think 12, like 12 dudes, right? But this time he's sending out more. And it's a reminder for you and I that that it wasn't just like this idea of being a disciple wasn't just for 12 people that Jesus called out by name. It's for 70 people. It's for 700 people. It's for maybe 700 million people. It's for however many people. Somebody's already counted this morning so that we can get an unattended sheet. However many people are in this room, however people that have been called by the name of Jesus and appointed to go out. And so we read these words in the book of Luke chapter 10, starting with verse one. After this, The Lord, that's Jesus, appointed, like literally set apart and designated this certain group of people to go. And that's the Greek word anadekumai. And I just wanted to say it, anadekumai, because it's kind of a fun thing to say. But it literally means to proclaim one as elected to office. This group of people that Jesus was sending out, he wasn't just sending them out to do tasks. Like I sent my kids out yesterday to do some yard work chores. They sound just like this today too, because for the past couple of days, there's been no rain in Nashville. So we've been working out in the yard, but like it's sending them out to do a chore. No, he's sending them out as if they are appointed and elected 
elected to, to be his representatives as in a special office. When we are sent by Jesus, it's a high, high calling. So after this, the Lord appointed, he elected, he specifically chose 72 in some manuscripts. Some manuscripts say 70. We want to rest on that perfect number. 72 others. And he sent them out two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. So, so Jesus sends out these disciples, people who were his followers. My table today is smaller than the tables that I've had in the past. And, and what we know about that in the moment as Jesus sends these people out. It affects the way that we understand the word disciple. Because the word disciple, we understand that that's, oh, that's a, that's a growing follower of Jesus Christ. But ultimately, that growing follower of Jesus Christ has a, a job to do. Being a disciple of Jesus always meant that you and I get to participate. That's in your notes this morning, that we are participating in God's powerful mission, to be his representatives in all of the places where he goes. Acts 1-8, we use this as a missions verse all the time. We don't have to flip there, but it says, and you will receive power, like we're going to get equipped for the job, like power to do the thing that we're supposed to do. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, comes into your life and you will be his witnesses. That's the Greek word martus, and it's literally where we get the word martyr, because it's not just the idea that we go and represent Jesus' places. It's not just the idea that we go and prove who Jesus is to places. It's that we're willing to lay down our lives so that other people in those places will get to know Jesus Christ. We'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be his witnesses, literally his martyrs. And then the Bible says throughout Jerusalem and Judea and then Samaria and the uttermost parts of the world. But before we get to Samaria, where people are not like us, or the uttermost parts of the world where people are definitely different, we're literally zeroing in right there on the community. It starts right where you are. In the city where your faith was born and in the community where your people live, that's what we're talking about. We've, we've examined the idea of what it means to love everyone always at our home. But, but now it's loving everyone always out in our community. And it means going and representing Jesus to them in such a way that they get to hear his words and understand who he is. So Jesus appointed 72 others and he sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and every place where he was about to go. And, and we'll read this first, but skip it for now. He says, he told them the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. This is like a mantra for Christian pastors. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into the harvest field. Put a pin there because we're going to go back to it. He says, go. I'm sending you out like lambs among wolves. Like, this is a dangerous place that you're going, guys. Do not take a purse or a bag or sandals and do not greet anyone on the road. When you enter a house, first say, peace to this house. If someone who promotes peace is there, your peace will rest on them. If not, it will return to you. Stay there eating and drinking whatever they give you for the worker deserves his wages. Do not move around from house to house. These, this verse right here gives us an indication of the types of people and the types of houses that they're going to. Like Jesus is sending out 72 people in little pairs, two by two. It's better to go together. That's great. Sending them out as pairs into the community. And we know just from like context clues in these verses that they're going to their own Jewish people, own Jewish brothers and sisters. How do we know this? Because Jesus told them to enter the house. They weren't allowed to go inside the houses of people who weren't Jewish. 
the house would have been labeled unclean by the Old Testament Mosaic law. Like they wouldn't have been allowed to walk into the home where they didn't do the ritual hand washing and where they didn't ceremonially clean the house. And he says, eat whatever they put in front of you. Ever heard of something called kosher? Like they had dietary restrictions. Jesus would not have sent them to the house in this moment. It would have been a whole different sermon for a whole different day if Jesus said, go to the house of the Gentiles, eat whatever they put before you. They would have raised their hand. But Jesus, you know, they're probably going to try to give us some of that barbecue. We're not supposed to eat that. Have some like shrimp scampi, dip it in the cocktail sauce. Like there's all this stuff that Jewish people were not supposed to eat. So if Jesus looks at his disciples in this moment and says, hey, I'm sending you out as lambs among wolves. Go into the house. You can bet money that in this moment it was a Jewish house. If he says, go to the table, eat whatever they put in front of you, you can bet money that it was a Jewish house promoting a Jewish diet that they would have been allowed to eat in that moment. So he says, tell them peace is here. Peace. Bring a sense of peace. Bring a sense of hope. Like the hope that I've given you because you've been following me. Take that and give it to somebody else who doesn't quite yet have the hope that you have because they haven't yet been following me. It says in verse 8, when you enter a town and are welcomed, eat what is offered to you. There you go again. Heal the sick who are there. There's all these moments we celebrate them like Jesus healing people all the time, doing dramatic miracles all the time. We're called to go out and do those exact same things. Our minds are blown. Jesus told his disciples, you're going to do, you've seen all these works that I've done, you're going to do even greater works than these. And they're like, how in the world is that going to happen? Like, how are we going to do greater things than you? Jesus sent them out and said, you go out there and heal the sick who are there and Don't just heal them. Don't just offer them bread. Don't just offer them that nugget of hope. But tell them where it comes from. It says, the kingdom of God has come near to you. Kingdom of God has come near to you. You know, we participate in God's mission because it's always been our call as disciples to do that. Being a disciple means that you participate in the message. And and the reason that we participate is because Christ came and because he had compassion. This whole idea of the 72 being sent out to offer this message of hope, saying that the kingdom of God had come near. Mark 6, 34 said that this huge crowd came around Jesus, and the Bible says that he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Christ came Like, you want to sum it up? Anybody ever asked you, like, why this whole thing had to happen? Why Jesus had to die? Why the Bible had to exist? Why there was this turning point between the Old Testament and the New Testament? And why it all centers around this person of Jesus Christ? It centers around this person of Jesus Christ because God was fulfilling his promise to come near to his people. Jesus Christ is Emmanuel. It means God with us. It's all people need. All people need is to know that God is close by. To know that he hears us. To know that he's not forsaken us. That he has not forgotten us. But that he's here and he will fulfill the promises that he has made to us in our day and in our generation. This was not the first time that God had described himself as a compassionate, loving God. When Jesus Christ looks at the crowd and he had pity on them and had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd, he was looking back to, hearkening back to Ezekiel chapter 34 when God looked out at the shepherds who had totally taken advantage of the sheep and actually led them astray to worship 
false gods in the community. And he says this, I myself, the great God of this universe says, I myself will tend my sheep and have them lie down. I will search for the lost and bring back the strays. I will bind up the injured and strengthen the weak. But the sleek and the strong I will destroy. I will shepherd this flock with justice. And who shepherds the flock? The one who's right there. Right there among the sheep. So Jesus looks out at a helpless crowd. He looks out at people who are hurting. He looks out at people who are lost. He looks out at people who need that kind of hope and need that kind of love. And he has compassion on them as sheep without a shepherd. And he's bringing to light the words that God spoke to the prophet Ezekiel. Where the Lord said, move these shepherds out of the way. I myself, I'm going to come and take care of the sheep. When God said, I myself am going to come and take care of the sheep, what he meant to say was, I'm sending Jesus, who is myself, to take care of you, the sheep. So it was good news that God's kingdom came near. It brought healing and it brought hope for most. But then Jesus also says in verse 10, but when you enter a town and you're not welcomed... Go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town we wipe from our feet as a warning to you. Yet be sure of this, the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than it was for that town. You know what happened to Sodom? Sodom was completely destroyed because of the wickedness and because of the sin back in Abraham's day. It's in the book of Genesis. You can read about it. It's a scary, like, not G-rated story. And then Jesus goes on to say, woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. And for you, Capernaum, will you be lifted into heavens? No, you will go down to Hades. Whoever, verse 16, listens to you, listens to me. Whoever rejects you, rejects me. But whoever rejects me, rejects the one who sent me. Three cities, Capernaum, Chorazin, and Bethsaida. Three little towns in Jewish Galilee, Jewish cities where Jesus spent the bulk of his ministry doing the bulk of his miracles, walking around and teaching the people along the seashore, giving them opportunity after opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to see him, to see that God had come near, and to believe in the God who sent him. But they rejected him. Archaeological digs have, have, have discovered this ancient city of Karazin, and you know one of the first things that they dug up? The head of a Medusa. In Greek mythology, like the head of the crazy lady with the snake hair, that if you look at her, you turn to stone, you kind of die. This whole like worship of the goddess temple and this fear of the false god's worship. So why is Jesus wiping his feet off the dust in this town? Because they had rejected who he was and this Jewish town who had every opportunity to know the prophecy and to understand that Jesus was the one who fulfilled that prophecy had rejected him. So Jesus calls them out on it. When we we think through 
this whole idea of who it is that God's called us to be and what it means to ultimately go and to be sent, to participate in the mission that God has and to bring the love. Like we get this roadmap. It was the same roadmap that God had given the 12 disciples in Matthew chapter 10 when he sends just the 12 out. And now that he's sending 70 more people out into the community, 72 by two going out into the world, he gives them these instructions. And it's like this whole, like God is equipping us to do what he's told us to do. It's journey goals. Like, what are we supposed to do along the way as we go? He says, go together. He does. He sends them out two by two. And I had this boss when I first started in ministry. His name was Nelson Searcy. He's a pastor and a church planner. And he says, if it's worth doing, Nick Allen, if it's worth doing at all, it's worth doing as a team. You will always find the best version of yourself with someone else, a partner in ministry, a team to do the work with. And I found that true every step of the way. It it, it makes sense that when Jesus sent them out, he sent them out in pairs because we're better together. We're we're better together. And all the people in the world who are just like, yeah, I can sit at home by myself and I can worship Jesus on my own and I don't need another community of Christians. That's just a lie that we continue to perpetuate and tell ourselves we absolutely do need each other. We certainly need each other if we're going to know God better. We certainly need each other if we're going to serve God to the fullest extent that we've been called to serve him. And then he says, travel light. Like that whole thing about like, don't take shoes, don't take sandals, like don't take all the sex. Like these people are going barefoot, community, community. Like what's going on here? But he says, travel light. When we talk about getting messed up in ministry, when we talk about the mistakes that you and I make along the way, it, it typically involves stuff. We either have too much of it or we want more. Like somehow or another, we can be warned that stuff is going to get in the way of us being to, able to go and to serve. Susan and I knew in, in January of 2005 um, that God was calling us to sell our first home. And, and it was a miracle of a purchase two years prior to that. So why in the world would he tell us to go ahead and give it up? It was the first one that we owned. We loved it dearly. It was the greatest thing. And he told us very clearly and very distinctly, Nick, you want to sell your house. And so January comes around. Well, we didn't put our house on the market. We didn't know how to buy a house. We certainly didn't know how to sell a house. And February rolls around, sell your house, sell your house. We never put it on the market. March rolls around, sell your house, sell your house. We never put it on the market. April, we're driving back from a night class in seminary, hearing so clearly that God had said, you are supposed to sell your house. We're just hanging on to it, hanging on to all the stuff that was there. We didn't need all of that. I turn on the right-hand turn signal, and I turn to this parking lot. And Susan's like, where are you going? We're heading home, and everything's closed. It's like 9 o'clock at night. I was like, Lowe's is still open. Why are we going to Lowe's? What do we need? And I was like, we need a for sale sign. We go, we find the for sale by owner signs in the Lowe's parking lot. We go home with those little stick-on letters. We put our phone number at the bottom, and we stick. That night, we get home. We put the, the, the stake in the ground. We The next day, I get up. I call the little local paper that's going to list your houses. Hey, three-bedroom, two-bathroom home in Charlotte, North Carolina for sale. Here's the telephone number. The ad is going to appear on Friday. On Wednesday, we had a phone call. People came to see the house. On Thursday, we had a signed contract, and I couldn't get my money back from the ad that we were going to run that weekend. God told us to get rid of it, and so we got rid of it. And then we went on mission and went to serve together, two by two. It's often our stuff that gets in the way of 
serving Christ. And I think that's why he very, so very clearly says to us, travel light. Don't take a purse. Don't take a bag. Don't take sandals. Just go. Don't get distracted along the way. Pick a base. This, this whole idea of like, like when, when you enter a house, like, like stay there, eating and drinking, whatever the people give to you. Like when you get to this house, stay in that house. Pick a base. Pick a home base. I think one of the greatest cultural challenges that you and I face as a church people, those of us who call this our church home or those of us who like this to be our church home, is that typically people show up around less than 50% of the time when that's their church home. Home and very clearly, like in that place of ministry, when I'm sending you out, pick a base. But church attendance waning all across the country, less than 50. Well, we've got church online. We can just do that. That's a great substitute. And we're a church that has an online service option. And I want to be very clear about why that online service option exists. That is there for people who are sick or people who are traveling Or people who are brand new who just want to check things out and dip their toe into the water of church to see what it's like before they walk through the doors. Church online is a place where you can get content, but it is not a place where you can get community. And we were built for that. Like it's always meant to be that thing that draws you in. I can listen to a Matt Chandler sermon Every single week, and I often do, you want to talk about great content? Go listen to that guy. Listen to Tim Keller on the regular. He's not preaching so much anymore, but every chance I get, I download and listen to that guy. But Tim Keller and Matt Chandler are never going to be my pastor. They're never going to show up in my living room. We're never going to go down to Bongo Java and have some coffee. Like, maybe one day we will, and that would be, I would fanboy that a little bit, and I'd be a little bit... I'd be a little bit nervous and probably not know what to say if that happened, but but these guys aren't going to be my community. They're going to come home to my house on Sunday nights for small group. And they would say very proudly, knowing that their sermons are out there online for consumption, that that can be your content, but it cannot be your church. Because this right here, thankfully so, it's not about content. It's about community. We, we, we need this together. We live in a world where there's churches all over town, and there's great churches all the time, and this one's doing this today, and this one's doing that tomorrow, and we have this, this culture of church hopping and church shopping, which is just one of the most damaging things that can happen in the life of the church, because when I go shopping, what do I do? I try on clothes. What do I do? I put the ones that don't fit, and I, and I keep the ones that do. If you go around church shopping and trying to find one that fits, if you find a church that fits you, run. Because if it fits, it's probably not good. Because you're not good. If you become the standard of what's good in the life of a church, Jesus' shoes are never going to fit us. They're always going to make us feel uncomfortable. They're always going to stretch us in a new way. So we're out there looking for a church in a context that, that feels good and that fits because that makes us the judge of what feels good and what fits when ultimately this, not this iPad because that's weird, but this, this book, this scripture, this, this person of Jesus should be our guide. So pick a base. Pick a church. An imperfect one, and hint, they're all imperfect. 
pick one and stick with it. Stick with a community. Stick with the people who are there. Dive in, dig roots, and be a part of whatever it is that God wants to do there. He sent them to these towns, and he says, hey, if it's good, stay there. Stay there. Be a part of it. Tells them to offer hope. That's the squad goal of every believer, to be, a, to be a voice of hope, to be a voice of peace, to be a voice of healing. He tells them to proclaim the kingdom. See, it's, it's, it's God's kingdom that allows lost sinners to come in. That allows the worst of people to receive God's merciful best, who is Jesus Christ. Tells us in that moment to trust God's provision. Eat, eat, eat whatever they're going to give to you. The workers deserve the wage. Get out there and do the job and, and then be provided for. Trust that God will provide. And then he says, hey, if the town doesn't receive you, then, 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 then take the, the wisdom of one of the greatest theologians of our time, Taylor Swift, shake it off. Just, that's okay. Shake, shake the dust off of that town and, and go to the next. We are so sensitive in our culture. If you don't believe me how sensitive we are, you must not be on social media. We are sensitive people. Getting offended over all kinds of things all of the time. The inability to handle rejection says so much more about the person being rejected than it does about the one doing the rejecting. The inability to handle rejection says so much more about the person being rejected than it does about the one doing the rejecting. We participate in this ministry because we're called. Not because it's easy. And, and, and not because people will so readily receive it. Because there are going to be moments when they don't. There are going to be moments when they reject. And when that happens, Jesus says, they're, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me and they're rejecting the one who sent me. And if you go back to that verse that we skipped right at the beginning, number two, it's kind of the, it, it's the mantra of churches. Like, hey, we've got this harvest around us. Like all of these neighborhoods and all of these streets and all of these duplexes and, and all of these students. And we say, okay, this harvest around us, this, this field that we're going to sow and this field that we're going to gather in, it's ripe and ready. And so we participate in the mission of God because we know that it's necessary and we, we know that people are ready. And the verses that were read not too long ago, just in our service, like this Roman, 10. How can people call on the name of Jesus unless they hear? And how, how can they hear if someone doesn't preach it to them? Romans 10, 14, and 15. How can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet. Apparently, according to Jesus, their feet without sandals on them. How beautiful are the feet of the person who brings good news. Everything in this message comes back to somebody's foot, even if it busts through the shoe that they're wearing. Like, we're called to be people who bring a message of hope and healing to the community. And in some cases, people are going to receive it. People are just ready. We, we participate in this mission to be the answer to somebody else's prayer. Well, how does that happen? It says because the harvest is plentiful, but the, the workers are few. It's the workers that we need. So he says, ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. 
Here's what I know about this church that's been here for more than 100 years in this community. Around, I mean, for a long, long time. There have been people throughout each of those generations, throughout each of those decades, who have consistently and constantly begged the Lord in prayer that this would remain a Christian outpost in this community in Nashville and that there would be workers to go out and till this garden. And so just by nature of occupying a seat in this room today, you very well may be the answer to the prayer that someone prayed a long time ago. Lord, the harvest is plentiful, but our workers are few. So so we're asking you to send us workers. Send us some some laborers to to go out into that field to answer that prayer. And I sit often as a pastor and, and try to examine that verse. Harvest is plentiful. Well, then, gosh, we just we want to see more harvest. We want to see more people come to Christ. We want to see more people understand what it's like to be made whole by Jesus. Because the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Isn't it funny that that the Bible? That Jesus in this moment doesn't identify a problem in the harvest. It identifies, he, he identifies a problem with the workers. Harvest is plentiful, that's a good thing. The workers are few. Corzine, we dug up that big Medusa head, it was a city known for its grain harvest. But in Jesus' words, it was a city known for rejecting the truth of God that had come. I can't even think about how many times in my life I've looked at those people. You know who those people are. Because in your mind, you have a those people. Oh, those people are never going to change. Those people are never going to trust Jesus. Oh, those people, it doesn't matter how, how hard you try or, 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 or how much you work or how much you pray. Nothing's, nothing's ever going to change there. We look at those people as if they are the problem with the gospel. And the Bible says that the harvest is plentiful, and so we know that there's, there's not a problem with the harvest. There's not a problem with those people. Their only problem is that they haven't seen and experienced the good news gospel of Jesus Christ that goes out to change. And the problem is never with those people living their life out in the harvest. The the problem is always with the lack of people who can work it. You know, as a youth pastor, we often had awesome, well-meaning volunteers who just couldn't believe the behavior of the students, right? They couldn't believe how the middle school and high school kids were behaving, and we wanted to, to bring in more rules and more regulations and more like behavioral guidelines. And I often found myself not identifying the problems with the youth of today, which there are some, let's just be honest, but, but really zeroing down in on the workers that God had called out within that church to work with them and saying this sentence over and over and over and over again. A person cannot act like Jesus until they know Jesus. And let's be honest, even then it's really hard. 
A person can't act like Jesus until they know Jesus. So we turn on the news and we get mad at those people for the legislation that they promote or the lifestyle that they live or the whatever, fill in the blank. And we so readily identify all the problems with those people. When here it's so clearly identified for us that the problem is not with the harvest. The problem is with the lack of workers who will go into it and show it the kind of healing, hope-filled love that... Huh. When When I bend and break and I don't do the thing that it is that I'm supposed to do out there in the world where I'm supposed to do it, who loses points? It's not me, it's the gospel. So the problem with those people is that they may have not seen or come in contact with the kind of love that Jesus told us to take with us out into the world. We can come up with a thousand reasons why why we're not a good answer to those people's prayer, why, why we're not supposed to be part of the harvest, why you're not supposed to sign up to serve, why you're not supposed to go out on a mission trip, why you're not supposed to dig roots and dive in and be a part of this community like an active, not just attending, but a participatory, participatory part of this community. Thousands and reasons. Like I, I always go back to the book of Judges in the Old Testament and this, this, this Jewish guy, this, this farmer named Gideon, He was threshing his wheat in a wine press because he was afraid of the Midianites who were going to come and attack him. The problem was not with the harvest. The problem was with the worker or the lack of it. And God says to him, this this angel comes and he speaks down to Gideon. He says, go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? And Gideon replied, pardon me, Lord. How can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I'm the least in my family. And the Lord answered, I'll be with you. So we pray to the Lord of the harvest, and we ask him to send workers, and then here we are. We showed up. We're, we're, we're ready. And then he tells us what we're supposed to do, and then we raise our hands, and we say, hmm, how are we supposed to do that? I'm kind of weak. My life is kind of messed up. I'm also kind of busy. I don't think I have the tools that it takes. I certainly don't know what I would say. How can I go out into that world and show the love that you want me to show and be the kind of believer that you want me to believe? I'm going to be a busted-up Nike shoe. I'm just going to fail. And I think Jesus' words to us, in response to all the arguments that we can make about doing the thing that he wants us to do, to be the kind of people that he wants us to be, to show the kind of love that he wants us to show, I think his response to us is the same as it was to Gideon. I'm going to go with you. And if you're right at the beginning of that passage, when he sends out these 72 people, he says, sent, oh, hey, he pointed 72 people and he sent them out to the towns, what? That he himself was about to go. He, he wants to be with us. I want you to be a part of this. Be a part of this two by two, two by four, like eight by, be, be a part of this community. Dive in, dig roots. But, but know that as you do, it is understood that the very reason that you're here is to be an appointed missionary of God so that we together can represent the love of Jesus in this community. I say it to the college students all the time. Like, you got all these opportunities. Like, pick one. 
Pick a local church. Dive in. Be a part of every single part of the life of it, the intergenerational body of Christ, and grow and thrive there, not looking for the next shiny carrot that's going to pop, because there's always going to be a shiny carrot. But dive in, dig roots, and be a part of Jesus gaining points in people's lives. Be, be a part of the gospel stock going up in this community because we're just loving each other so well and loving the people around us so well that they find a hope-filled message in the middle of it and they decide that they want to be his follower too. That's why we're here. And when we pray and ask God to send workers to this little harvest field, that's what we're praying for. And I believe that God's already answering. Would you pray with me today? Father, we're grateful for these words and grateful for a passage of scripture that just teaches us so much. And Father, my prayer today for men and women in this room is that you would do the kind of pruning that only you can do. That you would, by the power of your Holy Spirit, uniquely call and speak to each person. Tell them why they're here. Tell them that it wasn't an accident. Tell them that you have a plan and a purpose. That the seat they occupy this morning was handpicked by you. And you knew that they would be sitting in it. Singing these songs. Shaking those same hands hearing these same words knowing that they are called for the person in the room who's been part of the harvest God my heart grieves for anybody here today who who we broke the shoe for who who somehow or another needed the church to show some love at a significant moment in their life and the church just failed and the gospel lost stock because of that. And somehow or another, they rejected the, the hopeful message of Jesus because of the way believers didn't show love. Collectively, God, we own that. I own that. I own my piece of that. The moments when I've showed people the door instead of showed them a seat. And so, Father, in the same words that I say, please forgive me, I ask you to please love them and call them to believe in your son because he, what he provides is so much more than we could ever show. So if you're here today and you're thinking to yourself, well, that's no Jesus that I've ever seen before, but I, but I want that Jesus, then I would want nothing more than to talk to you today about what it means to give your whole life, martus, lay it all down for Jesus and to experience the hope and the salvation that only he can bring. I'm here after service. All, all you have to do is say, hey, can I talk to you about Jesus? I, I would love that more than anything. But those of us who are here who've known Jesus for a real long time and are still trying to work out what it means to be a part of the two-by-two, two, be a part of the team, be a part of the force, be one of the laborers that goes out into the community, Oh, we are a church that has a job for you. And what we would want is nothing more than to link arms with you 
throw off our shoes with you, go out into the world barefoot with you, and be a part of the harvest. So if you're trying to figure out what it means to be a part of this church and a part of this community, um, I'd love to talk to you about that too. Because God has put you here for a specific reason. And I believe it's to grow this church and reach the people outside of it. More than anything today, we want to tell the Lord that we love him and that we want to be his method of loving other people around us. So Jesus, that's our prayer. We know that the harvest around us is plentiful. And sometimes the workers are few. And sometimes the workers are just full of it. That's us, Lord. We ask that you would help us to be your representatives out into the world in such a way so that people find healing and hope in Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.